Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations uh, in our new podcast podcast format. We've been doing this now for quite some time. I hope you've enjoyed some of the programming that Francis, Harry, and I have been doing. Uh, Today, we're actually going to cover um, a program that we did together a number of years ago, but unfortunately, that uh, particular program was lost, uh, and we uh, thought it was important enough that we go back and revisit it. So we're going to do a, a conversation today, have a conversation on saint elizabeth of the trinity and her prayer to the trinity but before i go much further into that uh, discussion let me uh, introduce my co-host here in studio today francis harry francis how are you oh i'm so blessed mark and i'm glad to be here that we can have another conversation um especially on this saint that we both love and um, when we first did this program uh, it was about five years ago, and she was a blessed at that time. And we both kept saying, she's going to be a saint. She's going to be a saint. And, of course, we know today that she is. And so uh, it's even with greater joy that we get to talk about her famous prayer to the Trinity, knowing that she is canonized a saint. Well, and Elizabeth's major contribution to the church as a sort of a precursor to our conversation is the focus on, the teaching on, the indwelling of the Trinity. Now, she certainly did not formulate the theology around this. This is a much deeper and broader uh, theological concept, the indwelling of the Trinity, uh, than we would find in the very approachable uh, and practical works of Elizabeth of the Trinity. But she certainly gave us very meaningful information uh, to understand how to apply to our individual prayer life, and to deepen our own um, walk with the Lord through an understanding of this indwelling of the Trinity. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, we're going to begin as we always begin, and that's in prayer. And this is a prayer of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Consuming fire, spirit of love, descend within me and re reproduce in me, as it were, another incarnation of the word, that I may be to him another humanity, wherein he may renew his mystery. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's interesting that um, you chose that particular verse as the the lead-in prayer. Of course, it's a portion of Elizabeth's entire prayer to the Trinity, but it references uh, this idea of our becoming uh, another incarnation of Christ. And of course, that's what we're called to be. We are each called, in the same way that the Blessed Mother was, to um, incarnate Christ. Now, she did it in a very, uh, um, you know, practical and, and realistic way in actually giving birth to Christ. We give birth to him in spirit in our transformation, in adopting, as St. Paul says, the mind of Christ. We literally allow Christ to live through us, and this is what is meant by our adopting this model of incarnation of Christ. And so um, one of the things that Elizabeth teaches us is how to go about doing this, how to dispose ourselves to this. And I just want to make this, uh, I guess, emphatic point about the value of Elizabeth's teaching to the church. I'm particularly taken by her. For this reason, she speaks of her personal mission. All the saints had a personal mission. And Elizabeth, in a very special way, certainly for me and for so many Carmelites, uh, speaks to this idea of uh, our call to a life of contemplation and transformation in Christ. And she did so just before she passed away in a um, very explicit 
prayer, but one that uh, defines for all of us what her mission is and gives us a reason, I think, to listen to her. Frances, would you mind reading those words of Elizabeth? Right, and this speaks directly about her mission, which is important for us to know. She says, In heaven, I think my mission will be to lead souls to interior recollection by helping them to go out from themselves in order to adhere to God by a simple, holy, loving movement and to keep them in this great inner silence, which allows God to imprint himself on them and to transform them into himself. So this is a prayer that speaks to the very heart of our vocation. It doesn't matter whether we're Carmelites or not. This is the vocation of a Christian, to be transformed. Uh, we, we don't transform ourselves. We, uh, however, dispose ourselves to this work, principally the work of the Holy Spirit. And the best way to do that is to enter into our souls into deep interior recollection and wait for the Lord as in fact we do as we do this particular broadcast, Francis. We happen to be in the Advent season and we know that um, the Advent season is a time of waiting, a time of expectation, but we have to be prepared. We have to be disposed. And so that's what we're going to talk about using Elizabeth's prayer. And of course, as we are disposed, then God can come and work in us. So God does the final work of transformation in us. We do what we can do, but at some point, um, we cannot do anymore. We, we really have to be passive and allow God to root out the deepest roots of our sin and to infuse in us all the graces and virtues needed in order to be in union with him. Well, why don't we begin to look at the first line of her prayer. And again, Francis, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind as we go through this. I'll let you and your feminine voice read Elizabeth's prayer. I think that's probably the more appropriate way to do that. And then we can both discuss the elements of this. Um, so why don't we begin with that first uh, verse in, in the beginning of her prayer. Oh my God, Trinity, whom I adore, help me to become utterly forgetful of myself so that I may establish myself in you as changeless and calm as though my soul were already in eternity. You know, Mark, I have to say, the part I love about this very beginning is her saying, I adore. And, and of course, we're thinking, um, we're entering uh, from Advent, going into Christmas, and we're talking about, oh, come let us adore him. So uh, you cannot adore the Lord without believing in him. And so to use that word, I adore, right here off the beginning, you know, really states um, her unwavering belief because adoration is a result of this unwavering belief. Yeah, and if you're familiar with the four stages of prayer, of course, adoration is the first. Uh, if we enter into a 30-minute uh, opportunity for prayer, certainly if we have the benefit of being in adoration before our monstrance, before our Lord, uh, or even in, uh, with him in the tabernacle, we should always begin with adoration, setting the stage, if you will, recognizing who we are before God and who he is. I particularly am taken by the words utterly forgetful of myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's our call in Carmel. It, 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 it sounds difficult for the modern ear uh, to sort of uh, uh, wrap our minds around these words, utterly forgetful of self in a uh, society and in a time in society where uh, self is so 
perpetuated and advocated that we, we need to project ourselves. These words probably ring uh, a bit challenging, but I think uh, for us to understand what it is that God is calling us to, and as we discuss this disposition of heart and mind for the work that the Holy Spirit that Francis talked about wants to do, utterly forgetful of self is something that we have to uh, um, adopt and prepare ourselves for. You know, the um, uh, prayer itself is elaborated in a lengthier book entitled The Divine, uh, the Doctrine, actually, of the Divine Indwelling. It was written by a nun who lived in a Carmel that Elizabeth herself um, had lived in, and this woman was uh, particularly, I think, um, um, able to uh, both discern and elaborate and then teach on Elizabeth's prayer in a very uh, uh, you know powerful way and so uh, both Francis and I have copies of the book we both studied it and we're going to use it as one of our source documents and I want to begin by again asking Francis if you wouldn't mind reading um, a prayer that begins more as a poem at the top of uh, the 36th page of this book that builds on this theme of utterly forgetful of self. And this actually comes from a poem of Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity I was brought to nothing, and I knew not. To love is to forget oneself, to lose oneself in the beloved, within the burning furnace of his love. The true lover lives no longer in himself, but feels the need of ceaseless self-oblivion. And again, those words will be a bit challenging for uh, any modern uh, listener. Uh, to uh, come to grips with this idea of ceaseless self-oblivion. But we have to remember, we are not giving ourselves to another person. We're not giving ourselves to some goal or some aspiration in a material sense. We're giving ourselves to our Lord, to our sanctifier, to our eternal Savior. We are giving ourselves to the one who created us, who's forming us, and who's calling us to eternal life. And in that context, this idea of self-oblivion, not living for ourselves, uh, takes on more meaning. And this self-forgetfulness reminds me of what Therese, the little flower, had said. She said, I found happiness on the day whereon I began to forget self. And of course, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, developing this thought which was so dear to her, wrote, I think the secret of peace and happiness lies in self-forgetfulness, in not being preoccupied with self, which does not mean that we shall not feel our physical and moral ills. God would have you go out from yourself, leaving aside every preoccupation in order to retire into that solitude which he has chosen for himself in the depths of your heart. It may seem difficult to you to forget self. Don't think of yourself at all. If you only knew how simple this is, I will tell you my secret, so everybody pay attention here. Here is the secret of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Think of God who dwells within you, whose temple you are. It is St. Paul who tells us this, and we can believe him. Gradually, the soul becomes accustomed to live in his blessed company. She understands that she bears within herself a little heaven wherein the God of love has fixed his dwelling. She then breathes, as it were, a divine atmosphere. I would even say that her body alone remains on earth, for her soul dwells beyond the veil in him who is unchangeable. 
So this idea of unchangeable, changelessness is very important in the spiritual journey. God, as we know, is utterly unchangeable, changeless, and we need to enter into this relationship with him if we desire to seek the peace and the stability uh, that Jesus himself promised us would be ours, then we have to enter into this changelessness, not in the sense of uh, changeless in our body and in our uh, circumstances in life. Those will always inevitably be subject to time and to change. But what we're talking about is the, inter- the eternal component of us, our soul. There's another Carmelite uh, by the name of John of St. Samson, in fact, a venerable, venerable John of St. Samson. In a book on prayer in the spirit of Carmel, he writes about this condition that uh, uh, Elizabeth just elaborated on so well, and he says this, There, that is, in the, in, in the sight and experimental knowledge of eternity, you will be made simple and changeless, so that you can offer yourself to those deaths which present themselves incessantly to the soul that desires to give proof of its fidelity to God forcing it to turn to him continually and to dwell in him in a fixed and total immutability and to adhere to him eternally. Now this term immutability is the same word we've been talking about, changelessness. God is immutable. And again, it isn't the circumstances, it isn't our physical nature that um, remains changeless. It's always subject to change. But what John of St. Samson is saying is that in entering into this encounter, to this experience of God, it is the internal aspect of our nature, the soul, that remains changel- changeless. And that allows for all these little deaths. You remember this phrase he used, these little deaths. What are those little deaths? It's all the deaths of self, which Elizabeth had introduced us to in the earlier poem that Francis read. All those things that are, frankly, uh, impediments to our entry into this encounter with God. Anything that is subject to self-aggrandizement, self-acquisition or preoccupation, (laughs) anything having to do with uh, what we desire uh, in the temporal or temporary order in which we live. Immutability is outside of that uh, framework And it is something we enter into only when we enter into this deep contemplative encounter, which is something we do not uh, make happen, but we must dispose ourselves for. So for a Carmelite, eternity begins now, but not in exactly the same way we will experience in beatitude, but in the sense that we are not bound by time and space. We can dwell there spiritually in divine intimacy, And, of course, the Blessed Mother is the best model for this form of prayer, and she's also our guide. But the question still remains, though, Mark, how do we seek to remain changeless? Well, you cited the Blessed Mother absolutely, regardless of the the profoundly challenging circumstances she was faced with in her life, certainly the birth of a of a child and uh, out of wedlock and raising Jesus and all of the circumstances she had to deal with um, in in doing that. Um, She remained uh, utterly changeless and in um, her interior life constantly. Uh, But Elizabeth gives us the key to this in the next verse in her prayer, which Francis, I'm going to let you read and then I'll, I'll be happy to elaborate on it. 
but, but let me ask you to read that next phrase. All right, and this is going to center on peace. Okay, so here's what Elizabeth prayed. Let nothing disturb my peace, nor draw me forth from you, O my unchanging God. But at every moment, may I penetrate more deeply into the depths of your mystery. So you see, she gives it over to God. She says, let nothing disturb me. Now, this is the peace that Jesus said the world would not give, but only he could give. But it isn't a peace that we acquire it is a peace that we dispose ourselves to. And she says, Oh, my unchanging God, at every moment I penetrate more deeply into the depths of your mystery. We cannot, so to speak, stop searching for this peace. We must continue on the journey in John of the Cross's analogy up the mountain. We must seek to go ever deeper into this mystery of God. Remember, Elizabeth's not just talking about prayer here or fixed moments of prayer. For her, as well as for all Carmelites who understand this teaching, Prayer is not an activity. It is a state of being. It, is re- it requires that we remain in God's presence, as um, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection teaches, remaining in the presence of God. Instead, the outcome is for a continuous desire of a perpetual state of awareness of God's presence, responding to Paul's challenge to us to pray without ceasing. That prayer is expressed in our desire to be in this encounter with God and remaining ever aware of his presence in our life. You know, this passage from Elizabeth's prayer reminds me of St. Teresa of Avila's famous bookmark. At the end, she writes, Let nothing trouble thee, nothing disturb thee. God alone suffices. So it just reminded me of that. All right, so let's let's go on with with, uh, this theme of peace. She continues it in the next line of her famous prayer. She says, Give peace to my soul. Make it your heaven, your cherished dwelling place, and the place of your repose. And of course, I'm thinking of peace in the terms of the passions, like uh, your desires, your fears, your joys, your sorrows, that all of those passions may must be subjected entirely to God so as to be a solitary soul or a soul that is unified in God because when you're uh, focused on God and in God you are a soul that's in peace and you have what I I often uh, tell others to seek which is spiritual equanimity so that that you have a constant so it's like a river flowing you've got the bubbling up and above but but at the bottom you you've got this stream that is peacefully going forward despite all the little things that are happening on the surface. So how do we obtain this peace? Um, Well, I think self-denial, filial abandonment and prayer, as well as the purifying trials that God allows us and the grace that he gives us so that uh, we may be exercised in um, peace. Yeah, we should note here that um, Elizabeth does not say, um, my soul, give my soul, make my soul the place of my repose. Instead, she asks the Lord that he make it the place of his repose. She says, your repose, Mm -hmm. Uh, meaning she's opening herself up and inviting the Lord to incarnate himself in her soul, to live in her soul. 
Um, and she would characterize it as the creation of a little Bethlehem in her soul or a Bethany where our Lord is known to have sought refuge and uh, find his uh, repose and, and, and rest occasionally in the house of uh, Martha and Mary. Um, this is what Elizabeth is inviting the Lord to do. Seen from a distance, by the way, this uh, little village of Bethany has been described even now, even today, as a remarkably beautiful location, the perfection of retirement and repose and seclusion, uh, simply a lovely place. All of these are the uh, analogy to the human soul, a place of retirement, repose, and seclusion for our Lord where we can encounter him and experience the very peace that Francis read about in that earlier verse. In another place, Elizabeth of the Trinity um, says in a prayer, not this prayer, but in another one, she says, be the paradise of Jesus. She's speaking to us that, that we are invited and that we need to aspire to be the paradise of Jesus. She says, he is so little known, so little loved. Open your heart wide so that he may enter it. And there in your little interior cell of your soul, love him. He thirsts for love. Let us keep him company. And that will lead us to the next line of Elizabeth's famous prayer where she says, and she's speaking to the Lord, let me never leave you there alone, but keep me there, wholly attentive, wholly alert in my faith, wholly adoring and fully given up to your creative action. And I'm thinking of, you know, adoring in spirit and in truth. And we might begin to wonder, where does this tie back to the Carmelite uh, rule or to the Carmelite school of teaching on contemplation? Well, we might well imagine that Elizabeth picked this very line right off the rule of Carmel, which reads this way. Each one shall remain in his cell or near it, meditating day and night on the law of the Lord and watching in prayer. Now, those words are very clearly calling us to remain in this condition of awareness of the presence of God and to be, as Elizabeth said, um, with him, to keep him there, wholly attentive, wholly alert in our faith, wholly adoring, as Francis elaborated earlier, this idea of adoration, and fully given up to his creative action. It's right from the rule uh, that we are called to remain in our cell. And what's the cell, Francis? The soul. <clears throat> the soul, our interior uh, um, you know, encounter with Christ, <laughs> the interior castle in Teresa Davila's uh, uh, terminology. Well, then she begins to address herself specifically to Christ in her prayer. She turns a moment, if you will, if you can uh, imagine the, uh, the visual of this, she literally turns to Christ now specifically. And, and before I say this next line of her prayer, I just want to say, you know, to take note that Elizabeth of the Trinity is not saying, you know, that she will never leave him there alone. But she's asking him to make it so that, you know, that she would stay with him. She says, but keep me there. You know, so she's, she's asking the Lord to give her the grace to be with him. So again, it's not the focus on self, but it's focus on the Lord to give her uh, this grace to be with him. So she continues now addressing herself to Christ. Oh, my beloved Christ, crucified for love, I long to be the bride of your heart. I long to cover you with glory, to love you even unto death. Now this line speaks uh, to Elizabeth's greatest single spiritual aspiration, her overriding goal in life, which she expressed, having <clears throat> drawn from the words of St. Paul, 
to become a continual praise of glory. It's actually from Ephesians 1.12, where we read, In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. The praise of glory means we are a perpetual, living, breathing uh, praise of the glory of God. That's actually what we are called to for all eternity. That's what we will be for all eternity, a living praise of the glory of God manifested here, beginning here, in our soul, in our individual encounters with God. And it, it, uh, for Elizabeth, speaks her eternal mission, understood even in the midst of her life, in the midst of her prayer. And of course, we know that that was one of her key points, you know, to be a praise of glory, right? Mm. It was like a, a, a motto of hers. Um, all right, so we, we continue on with her prayer. And now she um, is looking at her inadequacy, right? And how she's begging the Lord. So this is what she writes in her prayer. Yet I sense my powerlessness and beg you to clothe me with yourself. Identify my soul with all the movements of your soul. Submerge me. Overwhelm me. Substitute yourself for me so that my life may become a reflection of your life coming to me as a door, as redeemer, and as savior. Well, this powerlessness is exactly what St. Therese of Lisieux spoke about when she acknowledged herself as just a little child, as, as a little flower. And, of course, we know that her great teaching is that of spiritual childhood, uh, which, of course, is not talking about anything childish, but, but rather this um, innocent, childlike uh, that is all loving, all believing of the Father, um, it means that she has complete confidence in her Father. And she's speaking here of God the Father, and that she recognizes her own inability to accomplish the great task of sanctification. In fact, in St. Therese's famous prayer, the um, act of oblation to merciful love, there's a line in there that I, I reflect on uh, greatly, and it is the line of her prayer where she says, Jesus, be yourself my sanctity. And I make that my prayer too. And so I invite you um, to, to add that to your prayers. Jesus, be yourself my sanctity. And I think that that's what Elizabeth is saying here when she's saying, clothe me with yourself, um, submerge me, overwhelm me, substitute yourself for me so that she can reflect him, come as endure, redeemer, and savior. So Elizabeth expounds upon that. Um, and, uh, you know, they were, they were overlapping in the number of years that they yep. were alive. Um, but I think when Therese died, would, would be 1897, mm -hmm. Elizabeth would have been entering Carmel like around 1901 or somewhere in there, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, she was only in Carmel a short time. She knew of Therese because, of course, by then the story of a soul had been published. Right, it, and the circular right. would have been uh, something that they would say, have say introduced. Say something about the circular. Uh, the many. circular is when a, <clears throat> when a Carmelite nun would die, they would write up um, a, sort of like, I don't know, a, a biography. <laughs> in a spiritual sense, biography. A spiritual yeah. biography of, of the nun so that others could benefit 
from their example and imitate something in their life. This is the way I understood it, although I've never seen one. <laughs> I would like to. Um, it'd be nice if they would publish those. <laughs> and maybe they are, but I haven't. I don't have that to my knowledge. And so um, I would think that when Elizabeth of the Trinity entered into Carmel, that she would have been exposed to the circular of St. Teresa, and especially that prayer. Um, and of course, as you said, Mark, the story of the soul began to be circulated. And of course, the convents, the Carmelite convents, would, would be some of the first to get that, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Francis, as you had indicated, um, this is where Elizabeth picks up on this theme that we actually began our conversation with, and that is this idea of powerlessness and asking Christ to substitute himself. Remember, we began with one of her poems that said, I was brought to nothing and I knew not. To love is to forget oneself, to lose oneself within the burning furnace of his love. It's a recognition of our dependence on God, what I like to refer to as our radical dependence on God. It is the beginning of the spiritual journey. You know, we can do so much, as Francis said, and we are required to do a great deal to get ourselves to a, a position where the Lord can work with us. But ultimately, what we're brought to is this understanding of a radical dependence on God. And as Francis said earlier in our conversation, the model of this is the Blessed Mother. Why is that true? Because she understood so well her own radical dependence on God. Something, by the way, she had to be brought into an understanding of. It wasn't all just automatically infused into her. Certainly she was full of grace, but she didn't have all knowledge immediately. And she had to be um, brought through this process. She was, after all, human. And in the prayers of the rosary, actually, we see this very process played out. We always like to advocate um, in our conversations when possible, the uh, recitation of the rosary. It is a school of prayer in and of itself and one that we should take advantage of every single day. And the Blessed Mother, just like each of us, as we said earlier, is given an invitation by the Holy Spirit to become the Christ bearer. When she accepted that mission, she immediately went about the work of charity, visiting, as we know in the next um, uh, mystery, her own cousin Elizabeth. When it is clear to her cousin, Elizabeth, that she is, in fact, the Christ-bearer, the Blessed Mother gives birth, then, to the Savior of the world. We are called to do the same thing. We, too, have to incarnate Christ. It begins with a recognition of our powerlessness and also this disposition that Francis read from Elizabeth of wanting our move, the movements of our soul to be fully infused with God. We must submerge ourselves, allow Christ to overwhelm us, substitute himself for us. I'm reading directly from the prayer. Thankfully, we can rely on the Blessed Mother to present Christ to us. That's the uh, next mystery in the temple of our souls, where if we've prepared ourselves with prayer, just like Anna and in Simeon, that mystery, right? and Simeon, I like to prefer to, or prefer to work on the look at the women in the story. But oh, okay. <laughs> um, Simeon actually recognized that, no question about it, and Anna too, because uh, it is said of her that she prayed and fasted continuously uh, at, the, at the steps of the temple, and therefore was able to recognize the Christ child. Now Elizabeth is going to continue in this uh, process of revealing to us uh, exactly how we go about preparing ourselves for this, and that's the next uh, uh, phrase and verse in her prayer. And I just want to note here that we're going over this prayer kind of briefly. Uh, the book Doctrine of Divine Indwelling uh, really goes into it at length. And actually one could take it to prayer and ponder it. Um, and it would take 
well over a year probably to get through it. I know you, you use this a lot. And yeah, you- I do. I use it constantly. It's a difficult book to find. I want to be upfront with people. It was actually published in 1950, so you'll find used copies of it occasionally, but it, it is a bit of a difficult book to find. You can often find it in good Catholic libraries. So whoever has um, an, an ability to twist an arm of somebody to get this republished, it would be a great one to have republished. All right, so let's get back to the prayer. Sorry for that diversion, but I thought it was noteworthy. Um, so Elizabeth continues to pray. O, t- o eternal word, utterance of my God, I want to spend my life listening to you, to become totally teachable so that I might learn all from you. Through all darkness, all emptiness, all powerlessness, I want to keep my eyes fixed on you and to remain under your great light. O oh, my beloved star, so fascinate me that I may never be able to leave your radiance. And I can't help but think on that last line, O oh, beloved star, you know, here we are in the Advent season and we're thinking about that Bethlehem star leading the way uh, to the nativity. And um, I think Elizabeth is a star in her own right <laughs> as, a, as a saint in Carmel and uh, for the whole world to teach us. Um, about this divine indwelling of our Lord. Well, referring again on that very theme, uh, the divine indwelling, to the um, uh, saint we mentioned a bit ago, at least venerable uh, brother John of St. Samson. Uh, He was actually a blind man. He was blinded at birth uh, due to an accident, actually, the administration of of a, a medical procedure they thought would help his eyes actually ended up leaving him uh, totally blind. He was also a gifted musician, by the way, but um, he's one of the few writers who have attempted to express this inexpressible reality that Elizabeth is talking about. And here are the words he uses to do that. It is the fruitative unity of God which ravishes souls in its super-essential plenitude, wherein, as we have said, the distinction of persons is no longer perceived but only the simple essence. Now, we should stop for just a moment here and elaborate on this. This is all very sound theology, and it has to do with this very idea of the divine indwelling, whereas, in in the words of uh, uh, John of St. Samson, um, this plenitude, wherein, as we've said, the distinction of persons is no longer perceived. Of course, that's only true in the Trinity, but in Christ's indwelling within us, we want to get to the point where we can utter, utter to the same words that St. Paul did, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what John of St. Samson is talking about. Well, and I think of um, perhaps a, a reference to uh, the prayer of union. Of course, there's the simple union in the fifth mansion, which is, uh, you know, the, without a doubt, the realization that God has been in your soul in, and that you have recognized him, that you've been uh, visited by him in a, a supernatural way, because we know he's always present. But, um, or, you know, the transforming union or the, the static union of the sixth mansion or the transforming union of the seventh. Well, John of Samson goes on explaining this a little bit more. He says, we become infinitely withdrawn from all that is, all that is not, and from all that may be. In this state, he says, the soul seems to be quite wrapped out of itself, entirely and utterly taken hold of by each of the distinct persons. And he means the distinct persons of the Trinity. 
who seem to leave their distinct operations without leaving their mutual repose and beatitude, which is their and our common super-essential unity. Now, I realize there's a little bit of theological language there, so let's try to unpack it just a bit. We struggle with this idea of losing ourselves so that we can become like Christ, but the explanation is actually found in the reality of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One nature, three individual persons, and we actually are drawn up into the very life of the Trinity. We are beginning, we are invited, and begin to participate in a continuous loving interchange of the Trinity. That's what happens in what Francis just described and cited the various references of transforming union, divine marriage, and so forth. These uh, phrases refer to our actual life in the Trinity, our participation in the Trinity. And again, as we said, we are not without our models and our guides on this journey, the Blessed Mother, first and foremost, as the one that we should turn to. Well, I wanted to turn to the book, The Doctrine of the Divine Indwelling, and, and read, um, I think we were going to have, um, Mark, you read that first paragraph, and I was going to read the prayer that follows. Yeah, this is this is um, uh, Elizabeth, um, the uh, the author of the book about Elizabeth's prayer, setting this up and then uh, allowing um, the, the Blessed Mother, the prayer to the Blessed Mother, actually to, to deepen our understanding of it. Um, the author says, There was a soul who listened always with most faithful attentiveness and intense recollection to the utterance of the eternal word, a soul perfectly recollected interiorly, keeping all things in her heart, silent listener of the utterance of the word, Mary alone with her great secret, Mary at Nazareth, pondering in her heart these unspeakable mysteries, Mary journeying through Judea, following her son in order to listen to him still more, Mary on Calvary, still listening to him, listening even to his consummation. And so we join the author in the prayer Oh, Mary, my mother, teach me to listen like you, silent and recollected to the words of the eternal word. Make silence in my spirit, heart, and soul, so that they may receive with perfect docility the words of your divine Son, you whose prayer was uninterrupted. Be for me the mediatrix of all graces at the feet of your Jesus night and day. O Mary, Mater, Amma, Amabilis, teach me to meet all things with a smile, to reflect, however slightly, the divine gentleness and amiability, so that souls may see how sweet a thing is the immolation of love. O Mary, cause of our joy, help me to rejoice always in the utterances of the word, to sing his glory and the joy which in Carmel blossoms triumphantly, on the thorny bush of renunciation and penance. O Mary, faithful virgin, in those sorrowful hours when I am asked to follow you to Calvary, be always at my side, close to me, in order to help me to receive from the lips of the Word himself this lesson of eternal life. O Mary, Queen, beauty of Carmel, at the final hour be with me still, and make me hear the veiny come, of the beloved beneath your virginal mantle may i pass into the bosom of the father where i shall hear for all eternity the voice of the beloved the eternal word so we've 
been introduced in this prayer to God the Father. We've spoken to Christ and asked him to come and be part of uh, our very life. We've turned to the Blessed Mother as a guide and um, we now turn in Elizabeth's prayer to the Holy Spirit because it is the work ultimately of the Holy Spirit as it was in the incarnation of Christ in the womb of the Blessed Mother. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that both transforms us and uh, allows us to incarnate the word into our very lives. And so, uh, Francis, I'd ask you to read that next uh, verse in her prayer. All right. This is Elizabeth. O consuming fire, spirit of love, overshadow me so that the word may be, as it were, incarnate again in my soul. May I be for him a new humanity in which he can renew all his mystery. Now, this is not work that is done exclusively in monasteries and carmels and uh, convents across the country. It is done in everyday life, in the work of the human soul. Here in this phrase, we see the significance of the tongues of fire that were present when the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost. He will speak the words of knowledge and wisdom to our souls. He will consume in us anything that is not God. Francis uh, elaborated on the the four elements of the passions, hope, joy, fear, and sorrow, that we have to conform perfectly to um, God's will. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. John, uh, the gospel writer, in uh, the 14th chapter, 26th verse of his gospel says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the citing, of course, the words of Jesus, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you into remembrance of all that I have said to you. Later, Hebrews reminds us that uh, our God is a consuming fire. It says specifically, for our God is a consuming fire. Quoting, of course, the Old Testament a verse that says very much the same thing. Elizabeth now, acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit, having brought us into a conversation with the Blessed Mother, having uh, prayed that the Lord would incarnate himself, turns again to the Father in her prayer. And you, O Father, bend down towards your poor little creature. Cover her with your shadow. See in her only your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased. In this verse, Elizabeth wants us to hearken back to Mount Tabor, where we hear the voice of the Father instructing the apostles through these events. And he was transfigured before them. I'm, I'm reading from chapter um, 17 of Matthew, verse 2 through 5. And he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this transfiguration, this transformation of Christ, who they had seen only in his human form up to this point, is now the image he wants to leave them with as not just a, a encouragement prior to his eventual uh, crucifixion and death, 
but also as witness to what it is that each and every one of us is called to become. Transformed, transfigured in the light of Christ. This is what our ultimate destiny is and will be for all eternity. This is what Elizabeth is leaving us with, a challenge that we must enter into that encounter with Christ in the deep interior of our soul. The Blessed Mother is our guide. The Holy Spirit is the work of the sanctification that needs to be done. And the Father who will oversee all of this activity in the same way that he made it real for us above uh, Mount Tabor uh, to, the, to the apostles that were there. Well, we're going to conclude the prayer uh, with Elizabeth's final plea, if you will, uh, to the Trinity as a whole now. She's spoken to each of the individual uh, persons of the Trinity, and now she's going to speak to the Trinity as a whole. Oh, my three, my awe, my beatitude, infinite solitude, immensity in which I lose myself. I surrender myself to you as your prey. Immerse yourself in me so that I may be immersed in you until I go to contemplate in your light the abyss of your splendor. So the author of the book that we've been working with, The Doctrine of the Divine Indwelling, uh, takes this very verse and elaborates on it a little bit more to make it uh, perhaps uh, uh, more meaningful uh, for us, uh, even beyond Elizabeth's beautiful prayer. And she writes this, this is the plenitude of life in unity. It is loving fellowship with the three. And no one can rob the soul on these summits of its celestial joy. And in this infinite solitude, where not is heard but the echo of the eternal word, it embraces the all of God. On all sides, it is surrounded with immensity, unfathomable immensity, image of eternity. O oh, infinite solitude, immensity of my God, wherein I lose myself like the most imperceptible drop of water or bubble of air. May I plunge myself forever into thy depth like Sister Elizabeth and sing with her. I have found my center in the divine abyss. My soul reposes in this immensity and dwells there with its God as in eternity. It is there, sunk to its lowest depths, that the abyss of our nothingness will find itself face to face with the abyss of mercy, with the immensity of the all of God. There we shall find the strength to die to self, and losing all trace of self, we shall be transformed in love. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. Well, that brings us to our closing prayer for this conversation. And it is, I don't know who wrote it, but it was to, um, to the Lord. Uh, about St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. So let's get recollected, put aside the concerns of the day, and let's go within to be with our Lord as we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. O God of bountiful mercy, you revealed to St. Elizabeth of the Trinity the mystery of your secret presence in the hearts of those who love you, and you chose her to adore you in spirit and in truth. Through her intercession, may we also abide in the love of Christ, that we may merit to be transformed into temples of your life-giving spirit to the praise of your glory. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Well, just a reminder, you've been listening to Karma Light Conversations and our new podcast. We really appreciate, listeners, uh, the time that you take to be with us. We certainly uh, value uh, any feedback that you would like to share with us on our website and uh, uh, via email if you choose. And uh, until we are with you again next week, God bless.